Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our second speaker is Father Mark Morosevich, a priest of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Father Morosevich is the Dean of the School of Theology here at Catholic University of America, and just recently he was uh, instituted, elevated, as a mitre mitre archpriest in the Ukrainian Catholic Church. He's a privilege to uh, welcome uh, Father Morosevich. Thank you very much, and thank you, Your Eminence, and the organizers of this conference today. It's a great privilege to be able to spend some time in reflecting about this fundamental theology. What future the priesthood? Now, I've been asked today to speak about the priesthood in the Eastern tradition. So I need to qualify that a little bit because it would be unable to represent every Eastern tradition, such as the Eastern or Western Syria, comprising the Chaldeans, the Maronites, the Malabarese, or the Alexandrinians as lived by the Ethiopians or the Coptics, or even the Armenians in a simple 20-minute talk. So I will focus on the Byzantine tradition for the purpose of our discussion. So as we investigate both the ministerial priesthood and the baptismal priesthood of all the faithful, I begin with a reiteration of the theological conception of anamnesis, not something specific to the Byzantine tradition, mind you. But it means that the eternal offering of Christ through his cross, death, and resurrection are eternally present before the throne of God as Jesus is our high priest and each of us participate in his priesthood. You know, the crucifixion is as real today as it was when people were walking the earth, when Jesus was actually on the earth with us in the physical form. So I want to focus on this foundational concept at the outside because although it's fundamental and basic teaching of the church, I believe it's little comprehended and lived in the average believer. And I believe that it's fundamental to the theology of priesthood. So our journey into the world of Byzantine theology of the priesthood will focus on the primary source of theology, the liturgy, the communal worship of the church, and more specifically, the Eucharistic liturgy as celebrated in the anaphora of St. John Chrysostom. The anaphora of St. John Chrysostom, at the very heart of the Eucharistic liturgy, explicitly presents the Church's own understanding of the theology of the Eucharist and the priesthood. For the purpose of this presentation, I will reprise some work that I've done previously for a conference at Santa Croce on the meaning of assembly. The body of Christ, right, the assembly gathered to worship on earth, conjures a sense of identity and belonging in Christ that likewise shapes our theological understanding. The text of the Anaphora will yield insights into the Byzantine theological understanding of the role of the assembly in the Eucharistic liturgy, and likewise help to foster our understanding of the ordained and baptismal priesthood. 
Like utilizing liturgical theological methodology, I believe that a focus on the prayers of the liturgy and their meaning in light of scripture and symbols points to the ultimate understanding and most authoritative theology. The Anapha presents a developed and refined understanding of the body of Christ in worship, which is at the very center of the concept of priesthood. I will leave aside the differences of the actual celebration of the Anapha and whether or not the Anapha should be recited aloud, as that's still a question in some Byzantine circles. It was indeed clear in the early church that there was an audible praying of the Anapha for the community to hear in accord with Justinian's Canon Number 6 and Novella 137. My direct examination of the text itself will strive to elucidate that deeper meaning. As a first observation, we see that the Anaphora of St. John Chrysostom, as you have in your handouts, demonstrates a continual utilization of the first-person plural, as well as having the entire community vocally praying at various moments throughout the Anaphora. I stress that the anaphora is one prayer with various elements. All too often, people look at each section of the prayer as disparate elements. The whole text has a proper structure and an inherent logic in and of itself. By way of comparison, the insertion of responses into the Byzantine anaphora with a Roman anaphora, for example, is it demonstrates a noteworthy and key difference that emerges in that the faithful respond amen immediately, even following the words of institution. This signifies a very active participation of the baptismal priesthood in the anaphora. As we analyze the structure of the anaphora, we know that liturgical prayers possess a certain structure that is common for all of our eucological structures. So I'll reprise it for you. The first section, the anamnetic section, begins with praising God and remembering all of the wonderful works of God, especially the salvation wrought in Jesus Christ. You can see this in your handouts, and it runs from line 1 to 28. The structure then includes a transition word like therefore or further that indicates a passage from praising God to asking God to act in specific ways, to respond to a particular need at hand, or the epicletic section that runs from lines 29 to the end of line 64. The prayer then ends in a doxology that brings the anaphora to conclusion with a summative focus, the invocation of the Trinity, and the final amen of the people. The basic anamnetic and epicletic structure helps us to recognize this as one unit, one prayer. Hopefully, it will provide a comprehension of the inner logic and intent of the prayer. And for your reading pleasure, I've also included right in there where the anamnesis is, where the epicletic section is. So the anaphora opens by praising the triune God and then continues by recalling salvation history in order to remember God's actions throughout history. The focus on God's love for his creation, especially humankind, begins the presentation of the wonderful works of God. In beginning on line 3 to 5, You brought us from nothing into being, and after we fell, you raised us again. You did not cease doing everything until you led us to heaven and granted us your future kingdom. 
This simple phrasing reminds us of what God has done for this community, for us. It utilizes the first person plural in speaking of humanity, all of humanity. The prayer continues to present in various ways God's steadfast love and his continuous work toward us. This remembering also includes us as we are a people who exist in a particular time and age of this continuing salvation history. The closeness of God exemplifies the warm relationship that is to be characteristic between us and God. This salvific charisma provides the impetus for us to Eucharistize, to give thanks. It continues explicitly giving thanks, beginning on line seven. We thank you also for this worship, this liturgy, which you have deigned to accept from our hands, even though the stand before you. So even the acceptance of the liturgy, this worship of the entire community that is brought to the Lord through the living sacrifice of the lives of the members of the body of Christ gathered through the intercession of the priest. This prayer then unifies the worship of those gathered with the eschatological worship present at the throne of God as we sing the thrice holy hymn sung by the assembly, lines 11 to 12. We are reminded of the angels. The prayer continues on line 13 and makes this explicit by saying, With these blessed powers, O Master, who love mankind, we too cry out and say, Holy are you. This sense of the unity of the earthly and the heavenly demonstrates the clear eschatological setting of the anaphora. It then goes on to speak of how God's love led him to send his son to be with us, beginning in line 15. The prayer then recounts salvation history by remembering these actions of Jesus on the night before his crucifixion and continues with the insertion of the words of institution uttered by Jesus at the Last Supper, including a blessing of the species, the bread and the wine. Following the recitation of the words of institution, the entire assembly responds to each with their acclamation of an amen. The scriptural embolism into the prayer denotes a particular emphasis. Its placement at the end of the anamnex section providing a fitting summation of the focus of remembering God's actions, a climax. The acclamation of the faithful to these phrases emphasizes the inclusion of the faithful of their baptismal priesthood, of their worship, of their movement in prayer to praise God, the very, in, the very act of offering that Jesus commanded that comes about through the words of the priest and the acclamation of the faithful. Thus we see that this accentuates Jesus' great works, especially his own offering as our sacrifice, which he does as the high priest. Recall Romans 8, 3, 31 to 34, Hebrews 11, 9 to 15. This anamnetic section comes to an end and is punctuated by the charismatic prayer called the Anomnesis itself in lines 25 to 27. Remembering, therefore, this salutary commandment and all the things that were done for our sake, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension to heaven, the sitting at the right hand, and the second and glorious coming. We offer to yours of your own on behalf of all and for all. The words of institution, and then this concluding anamnetic section, 
really provide a powerful focus with this culmination. Note this liturgical offering united with the one sacrifice of Christ that happened in time but is not bound by time is here. Likewise, the mention of the second coming as a part of the anamnesis itself indicates to us where we're standing in this prayer. United with God. Remember, for God, there is no time. All is continuous present to him. Therefore, the commemoration of the whole salvific work of God is stated in its completeness, even if the end has not yet come to pass for us. This eschatological emphasis functions to focus the entire wonderful works of God as a continuation of the saving acts of Jesus Christ in our midst, even today. The faithful then conclude the anamnetic section by singing, we sing of you, we bless you, we thank you, O Lord, and we pray to you, our God. Once again, note the first person plural is being utilized with a direct thematic continuation of the praising of God in response to the offering of Jesus Christ. The prayer then shifts the epicletic section as noted on line 29, and this sentence provides a crucial and in-depth theological statement. Further, we offer to you this rational and bloody worship, and we ask, we pray, and we entreat you, send down your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts here present. The offering is clearly posited as a rational worship, whereupon the Holy Spirit is invoked upon us in the gifts. The placement of the invocation of the Spirit upon the assembly marks a thematic crescendo as the focus of the whole prayer is to send down this Spirit, this work of the Spirit. The prayer immediately calls for the transformation of the bread to be the body of Christ. And that which is in this chalice, as it says, to be the blood of Christ, all changed by the action of the Holy Spirit. The next phrase presents a deepening of the expected impact of the transformation of these gifts or the goods of this liturgy in line 33, so that they may be for the communicant sobriety of soul, forgiveness of sins, fellowship of your Holy Spirit, fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven, confidence before you, and not for judgment or condemnation. These phrases clearly illustrate the expectations that focus the effects of the Eucharistic offering on the healing of the person, putting into right relationship with God and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. This right relationship with God, the work of Jesus Christ, then leads to the expectation of confidence before the Lord. In other words, the effects of salvation establish the person in the depth of an intimate relationship with God that enables the person to worship in spirit and truth. These gifts are bestowed on all the faithful, the ordained and the priest, and the faithful each in exercise of their respective priestly dignity. So the worshipers take a primary importance. This section stresses that the Spirit works upon the community as it accentuates the Eucharist as truly transforming lives. Of course, this transformation occurs by the work of the Holy Spirit. The prayer approaches God with humility and asking his action in this manner. 
Thus, the first and primacy of the focus is on bringing about the unity of the followers of Christ into one body. Its fulfillment occurs by the work of the Holy Spirit and does not depend upon our gifts, our abilities. These, those present simply are called to follow the prompts of the Holy Spirit that make the reality occur. The prayer continues to petition that no one receive the gifts as judgment or condemnation, but rather leading the participants to mercy and grace for those who have gone before. So this is all based on an antiquing model of anaphora, accentuating this great work of Christ. It's important to realize that this eschatological emphasis is what undergirds the entire ethos of Byzantine liturgy. For we did not know whether they were on heaven or on earth, so said the envoys from Kiev in 988 when they were seeking to establish their religion of their state. This emphasis, I believe, helps us to put into right respect this idea of priesthood. Because as we've been discussing this baptismal priesthood, each of us are participating in this gift of Christ. Each of us are brought to this eschatological reality of Jesus Christ acting in our midst. And certainly the ministerial priesthood has its place and its unique giftedness in bringing about this deep reality of the eschatological presence of this sense of Jesus Christ's priesthood that continues in the here and now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Father Marufovic. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.